With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. All of these things have happened to me. I've found new passions, new interests. I've gotten divorced or I've lost a job or the economy crashed and I needed money and I was I had kids to raise, a family to raise, and it's hard. But I wanted to make it easier for others, particularly people who feel scared or in despair over this. So I wrote a book about my experiences and the things I've learned. The book's called Reinvent Yourself, and it's all about taking action, no matter where you're starting from. You could be starting from total scratch, or you could have all the skills you need but don't know what the next step is, whatever. Whether you want to supplement your income with a little extra cash or even replace your job or replace your career or find something to do in retirement or find a way to get to retirement, reinvent yourself. I wrote this book to show you how, and I've reserved a copy for you today that I'd like to ship to you right now. All you have to do is go to www.reinventbook.net. That's www.reinventbook.net. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I think when you cross-pollinate something, when you take your two worlds and put them together, two things that you're an expert in, you create something brand new. And I saw a little bit of a market opportunity for it. Right, and then, and then career-wise, you stand out from the thousand other magicians maybe in the California area that are all doing the pick a card in the car. I'm not saying anything bad about them. I'm just saying now you get to stand out. Now you skip the line. I, I really love that metaphor of skipping the line. And I, I think I also did it because of other, other relevant experience I had in my life. Everything you do is relevant. All the choices you make, all the jobs you take on, all the... I, I went off to Hong Kong for two years and didn't work in my 20s and just kind of messed around in Hong Kong for two years. But, you know, that was relevant experience too. And I learned things over there that I am putting into a show right now that I'm writing and everything is relevant. And that helps you skip the line because you take experience that other people don't have and you imbue it into the track you're on. You ever use like a public Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or an airport or a train or whatever? Well, if you do, your business is vulnerable to data theft. That's why you need this product called Tunnel Bear for Teams, an easy-to-use Wi-Fi security app built specifically for teams that are regularly on the go. And unlike other VPNs, expensing is easy. There are no licenses to juggle or one-off invoices to manage. So try Tunnel Bear for Teams for free for seven days by signing up at tunnelbear.com slash James.
When we challenge what hasn't been done, we discover the science behind what's yet to come. That's what drives Bayer to find even better answers to today's best agricultural solutions. They're working with farmers to shape what's next. Farms where all life grows together. Crops that can help raise communities out of poverty. Tools that help plants and farmers use less water. Bayer, science for a better life. So David Kwong, author of Spellbound, Seven Principles of Illusion to Captivate Audiences and Unlock the Secrets of Success. I just saw your magic show the other day. It was brilliant. But what fascinated me was, it's not like you're just doing a magic show. I've seen a thousand of those, but you are also a great puzzle solver. We'll talk about that. You've been really into crossword puzzles, other types of puzzles. And the way you combined both aspects of your mastery into this one unique show that nobody else can do was fascinating. We just talked about how this enabled you um, to so-called skip the line of uh, in the in I don't want to say the magic industry that feels weird, but you just skip the line career-wise in terms of having a unique act and putting yourself in the forefront of the magicians that people are talking about, both in on a personal level, a corporate level, TED Talk level, you know, magic club level, and so on. Well, that's nice of you to say. Thanks. Uh, yeah, one of the first lines that I say in my show is. I've taken the world's two nerdiest hobbies and combined them into one career. Exactly the career path my parents envisioned for me. Um, what did they envision for you? They're both professors. Um, of they, what? Uh, my mother's a history professor, and that plays a large role in the show. And my father's a biochemist. What did they envision? They just, some people have it worse. Some people that run away with the circus, their parents are a lot more judgmental. They, they've always been supportive, concerned, certainly concerned, can I cobble together a successful career? Uh, I also remember my mother saying at one point, what is it, what does being a magician look like when you're 65 years old? She was a little worried about that too. That's a great you know? question, actually. It really is. Yeah. Because I think like I was, uh, you know, by the way, we're not going to stay on topic for at least half of this, but yeah. I was, I was talking to someone last night who was a comedian who's good comedian, about to be 50, does cruises, the usual thing if you're not doing movies and TV shows. But I asked him the exact same question. Where do you see yourself at 65? Like, how does this, what happens next? Because you kind of have to ask yourself that even from a, I don't know, I would be, I have to ask that of myself. Like, I get scared if, I don't, if I'm not asking that. Yeah, everyone does. Certainly people that are in the public eye and trying to stay relevant. I think the good news is that for me, in my DNA already, I'm kind of an 80-year-old man, so uh, I'm already doing the uh, absent-minded professor kind of racket. So do you do I, like Tai Chi with all the other <laughs> no, Chinese no, people in the neighborhood? I don't, I don't do Tai Chi. <laughs> the 90-year-old I, I certainly Chi like <laughs> only listen to Duke Ellington and Count Basie. <laughs> but um, uh, I'm not trying to do the rock star magician thing. So that, um, which I do think has a bit of a shelf life. And by contrast, look how amazingly Penn and Teller have stayed relevant and how they have so naturally evolved and they're so relevant today. They're doing the, they're in their armchairs at the foot of the stage watching magicians try to fool them and they're the mentors. And it, um, you know, I really emulate those guys. So kind of, so, so what is it about that that excites you? It's It's not that they're like, hungering for audience approval 40 years after they started, they've kind of taken this meta view that, hey, we're going to be the the arbiter of quote-unquote magic, like tr 
fool us. So they put themselves on the, uh, in the audience position. Um, do you, is that what you admired or what, what do you sort of, what's the, what's the connection? Well, I think they're very good at, um, at, at knowing what audiences want to see and how audience are evolving and how the tastes are evolving. And that is what I try to do and what we all try to do. And what, what's so brilliant about fool us is it's, and, and also I think my show is also in the same vein, which is that we're at a, a phase in magic now that embraces transparency because the era of making the Eiffel Tower disappear is over. First of all, because everybody has a, a video camera on their phone. It's under surveillance the whole time. But I think today's magic in the information age, tricks are getting exposed on YouTube. Um, there are YouTube videos that are teaching tricks. There's just, there's so much more information out there now. I think that Fool Us is is pulling back the curtain a little bit, which frankly, Penn and Teller have done now for decades, but it's, uh, it's a, and it's which, a which fresh the, format for... They derive a little from like the amazing Randy, although less extreme. He's trying to disprove, he's trying to show that people who are claiming to be psychics are actually amateur magicians. Yeah, magicians are the great debunkers. And um, and I and I take a page out of their book, and I I expose the first thing I do is I walk out on stage and I expose a a trick in my show, which is a safe one to expose. I did my my homework. I'm not ruining anyone's magic show by exposing that. But I I say there's no magic in magic. This is all a puzzle. It's all something that your your brain is is challenged uh, with uh, with is tasked with to figure out what's going on and. Um, you know, that's, I think that's a common thread in, in, but, but can I, can I ask yes. about that? Because yes, there's transparency and, and, but it's not like, I think sometimes people get the impression like, oh, it's just a trick, blah, blah, blah. Here's how they do the trick. Uh, it's not just that because even to do the trick, like how many years, how many hours of your life have you practiced sleight of hand so you could do that trick? So even if you explain it in detail to a, million people they still can't do it because you've d done all these hours of practice of sleight of hand like like just to do a pick a card any card and then you do some sort of whatever weird swap you do how many hours of practice did that take i, I can't count them thousands and thousands it's it, it was sitting in the back seat of the car as we did road trips in my teenage years just practicing um false cuts and shuffles and so it's like professional athlete level of practice oh yeah oh yeah 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 <laughs> Um, and, 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 and that's, what's fun is that we can expose how something is done or, or be transparent to the audience and their, their, um, innate physical behavioral, um, um, inclinations will cause them to still fall prey to the misdirection. So I can say, get ready, look for it, but you're going to watch the bull rolling across the table. Your your eyes have to follow that, hmm. so it's 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 extra fun for us to. There's a there's a there's a famous trick called the um, card under the glass, where you are telling the audience again and again and again, I'm going to get your card underneath this coffee mug. That's and and you're never going to see it because I'm going to misdirect you. As and then you layer that with explanations of what's going on as you're doing it, and you fold into that explanation some misdirection, and you do it again right under their noses. So. And you describe a lot. What what I love about the book, because you just you describe a lot of this in a meta way, like what you just said. You describe in this book. You have this section 
on beat, off beat. So yeah. on beat is where you're doing the mechanics of the trick. Off beat is when you might be talking to the audience or engaging them in some way and that there's actually misdirection happening during some of these off beats. And so presumably that was what was happening, what the trick you were just describing. But I like how you describe this arsenal of tools that are a little bit meta. Like you're not describing how to do sleight of hand, you're describing when kind of the structural aspects of these tricks. And, you know, I want to ask about the puzzles in a second, but can you just tell the story with, um, you were, you were pitching, you were talking to the producer. I forgot what shows he had produced or written. And you did this amazing trick. You and your friend did this amazing trick at his house. And then you even were transparent to him, but you misdirected how you were transparent to him. It was just such a great story. Can you tell that story? Okay, yeah, well, we're, we're hitting a lot of different principles here. So let me first talk about on beats and off beats. So on beats, the, the on is when the audience is watching your hands, your, your eyes, your, your body posture. The focus is perhaps on the table right in your hands. This is the story I'm telling. Watch me right now. So, the, so an example would be like, pick a card. Yeah, that's an on, that's an on moment, absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, then an, and then an off moment is I relax my shoulders, I tell a joke, uh, I, I get a glass of water. Uh, this is a, a small little interruption in the flow of the story. And that's when the magician does the secret move. Um, and then I, we come back on immediately and we pretend that nothing has happened. No time has elapsed. Just in terms of on beats, off beats, can yeah. I ask something about your, your actual ongoing show? Uh, it, not, I, you, you may ask. I may or may not answer. <laughs> when you say something like, uh, um, I forget the, the, the prelude, but like you guys do something, I need to just clean this table here uh, and the audience is doing something. I felt like that was an example of an offbeat. That, that's, that's an offbeat. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think there's a moment in the show where I am cleaning something up and doing a move, but it's certainly within the, uh, uh, the realm of when a magician would do something. Absolutely. Okay. We're wiping a speck of something off the table. We're getting a glass of water. We're... Uh, you know, the table's on wheels and we're kind of moving it around and, and, you know, you can steal something from under the table then. It's all fair game. So, but I think, I think kind of naming these things like on beat, off beat probably helps you to, when you're structuring a trick, you think about these on beats, off beats. So I, it, what's yeah. interesting to me is just kind of applying a vocabulary to these moments helps you to probably construct the trick as opposed to sort of reinventing the wheel. Oh, now I need to let them look somewhere else for a while. Well, we we work backward from the effect. So we think about what moment we want to finish with, what we want the audience to experience. And then there are many, many ways, many methods to bring about that effect. So there might be a, if you're talking about a deck of cards, there might be a, a sophisticated and difficult technical move that you're doing on the onbeat during the onbeat, everyone's watching your hands, but you're that good, you're that quick that you can cover all your angles. That might be one method to accomplish the effect. Or maybe you're not as skilled with a, uh, with a pack of cards and you need to tell a joke or go get a drink of water and you steal something that you need or you ditch something that you need at that point. So there are many different ways to, to accomplish something. You, you, you talk, well, this is related to something else, but, um, you talk about the time uh, with the movie uh, Now You See Me uh, yeah. with Jesse Eisenberg, and I guess you helped construct that initial trick in the in the beginning that he does, and he's like, pick a card, and he fans through the deck, but the only card, he's fanning so fast, but somehow he 
freezes a little on the seven of spades, I think, or seven of diamonds. And that's, of course, the card that the woman picks. And the audience, by the way, picks too, because mm -hmm. that's the only card we see. Is that, it's hard to know when you're watching a movie if the movie cuts for that or if that's an actual trick, but is that a way of, uh, you know, sort of forcing people to uh, pick a specific card? Was there, is there any other way like they could have picked the six of clubs? Um, well, <laughs> you got me in a tough spot here. I think I'll, I'll answer by saying yes, because we're talking about that specific movie. And, uh, and hopefully when you were in the theater, it, it worked on you. And um, this is why magicians don't like doing things for video, because people can watch that movie again and again and again. But uh, that is the choice that we made. So, so yes, that is the only card that you can see there. Um, that's a variation on, you know, there's hundreds, if not thousands of variations on how to do that. But, but um, that's an example where on the on beat, you're kind of, you don't, you don't need as much the off beat there. You're doing the, the, the trick all in the on beat. That is all, that is all on. Yeah, that's all on. Um, you could argue that most, when you're watching film and television, it's mostly all on because in live theater, you can take a break from the action to go get that glass of water, but you can't really do that for film. So, so for film, it's all on and you need something that is a little more bulletproof. So it, like we were talking in a prior podcast about investing and how good investors reduce risk. And it strikes me, particularly when I was reading your book and I was watching the show, that uh, magicians, their whole entire job, like you just said, you have an effect first that you want to create. And then your entire job after that is to reduce the risk of the audience figuring out how you're doing the trick. Okay, so this is, a, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. There's a lot we can talk about. Uh, there, there is, I, I, I break, we call these outs. So outs are your backup plans. And I call them safety outs and emergency outs. A safety out is built into the trick already. It's the many ways that a trick could go so that all your bases are covered. So you, you referenced a, a trick I did before. I was asked to go over to a director's house to consult on a film. And we went out to the backyard. I'm telling the short version of the story. And I said, name any card. And he named the five of hearts. And I said, go, go look, uh, dig in the dirt there next to that tree. And he pulled a folded card up and it was, uh, it was the five of hearts. And that is because that worked because my friend Blake and I had buried 52 playing cards in the backyard and we knew where every single one of them was buried. That's having 52 safety outs. Um, an emergency out is You've, you've shot the work, so to speak. Like, what, what are you going to do? How are you going to get out of this situation? How are you going to salvage things? And oftentimes, we are relying on our skill set. We're well-practiced. I feel very... I'm most comfortable in life on stage because I know that I can get out of any situation. And... Because of planning or because of skill? I mean, obviously, both. There's, but there's, there's both. There's mm -hmm. both. So... Uh, for planning, for example, I do. Um, I have a little basket that is stage left of my show, and there's an extra deck of cards in there because at one point I have the audience member shuffle a pack of cards, 
And after years and years of doing this, I've seen that pack of cards go all over the floor. And you don't want to be stooping down to pick that up. So I know to have an extra pack of cards there. I do a trick with a piece of fruit in my show. Something impossible happens with that fruit. I have an extra piece of fruit in that basket too because I hand that out for three quarters of the show and somebody's holding it and people have dropped it. They've stepped on it. They've taken a bite out of it. So you learn to have these built-in emergency plans. But also I am so well-practiced with a pack of cards that I know that I can use my skill set to, to fix. If a card trick goes wrong, if I'm getting the wrong card, if you pick the seven of diamonds and I show it's the king of spades and I'm like seriously wrong, I know I can get that seven of diamonds very quickly and salvage the trick. And you'll never know. I'm going to transition into another principle here. You never know that anything was truly amiss because I don't tell you what the end of the trick is supposed to be. Right, so your backup plan might have been like, suddenly now you go into a mode where you play surprise at the king of clubs and then the audience, lay, and, then, and then the seven diamond shows up under the table and the audience thinks you've planned it that way all along exactly. when that was your plan B. Right, so we're always able to pivot to get to the end of, uh, uh, of where we want to go. We never, we never tell you where, where the trick is headed. And so, so, I know. I noticed you. You didn't uh, spoil the story with the producer, so I won't tell how you, you how you concluded that story in the book. But I'm curious about the precursor to that. You he had a choice of going in the front. You offered the front driveway, and he suggested the backyard. But that's where your trick was planned. How did you? Uh, that's why I didn't understand. How well, did that's you get him? that's that's exactly highlighting the point that I just made. So. My friend and I had been to the house hours earlier. We buried all these playing cards. We, the most effective tricks placed choice in the hands of the audience. So I allowed him to say to me, um, hey, can you show me one last trick? And I said, oh, I don't know if I have anything prepared, but yeah, I can, I can come up with something. Do you have a driveway that we can go into? Do you have a, a nice outdoor space? And he had, he suggested, well, let's go to my backyard. It's, it's a lovely, verdant, you know, um, there's a beautiful, there's trees and grass. Let's go out there. And we nice agree. use of the word verdant. You're, you've, yeah. you've gone to college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never but, heard that used in a sentence before. I've read it. I've never heard it actually <laughs> said out loud. But had he chosen the austere driveway, by contrast, <laughs> we would have gone there and then looked around and my friend and I would have said, you know what, this isn't quite working do you have uh, some, a place with grass or do you have something else that we could go to? And that's, we didn't, again, we didn't paint ourselves into a, a corner. We, we didn't tell him what the end of the trick was going to be. So we took a little bit of a risk and suggested driveway, hoping he would upgrade us to the backyard. And he did. And this, the principle here that governs all of this is the illusion of free choice, which states that if you can get your audience believing that they are dictating how the trick goes, they will buy into the illusion more. So, so if you had taken you to the driveway and you then said, ah, do you have any place with grass or whatever you would have said, would you, how you would have taken a little bit more risk that he would be thinking something sneaky is going on. Like, so obviously you have to have very good skills of persuasion. Yeah. To I think you played off as casual and it's this faux spontaneity. And this was all under the guise of, Hey, David, can you do one more trick for me? To which I replied, well, I didn't really plan anything, but yeah, we can go with this. We'll try to figure something out. So 
I think I could have easily gone out into the driveway and looked around and said, you know what, this isn't this isn't quite going to work. Do you have, is there another place we can go, something bigger, something a little wider? Uh, I'm not quite sure what I want to do yet, but maybe, you know. And and, <laughs> and I want to I want to add that you, before, in the beginning of the story, you did something very interesting, which was you were 15 minutes late for the meeting and you were able to say, sorry, we got lost. We didn't know where the house was. So that it kind of puts in his mind right from the beginning that you've never been there before. Yeah, we were buttressing this illusion of spontaneity. So I've, I've told the whole story out of order now, but basically we showed <laughs> sorry, up. Sorry, I, I kind of forced no, it. No, 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 thank you but so much. I'm, I'm leaving the blank thing you didn't add, at the, but but people have to read the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so from starting at point A, we showed up at the house. We apologized we couldn't find it. We showed up late. We, this was a, a, an important meeting to work on a movie. And Blake and I showed up late on purpose. So just so we could say at the door, sorry, we couldn't find the house. But we'd already been there already. We did some tricks in the living room. We waited. We started to pack up. And we waited for him to say, let's do one more trick. So how did you know he was going to say that? Is, the, is it just because everyone says that? Everyone says that. And if he didn't, we would have said, hey, do you want to see one more trick? I see. But you take these risks. Uh-huh. Uh, but there was small risk because if you had said that you still have the fact that you're 15 minutes late, he's still not going to think something weird's happening. Yeah, yeah, so. exactly. Calculated risks, and mm-hmm. um, and then we 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 conferred, and th- you know, we, yeah, we could probably come up with a trick to do. We, we got it. Yeah, we can figure something out. Do you have a driveway we can go into? You got an outdoor space, a nice outdoor space, and he suggested the, the backyard instead. So we agreed to the backyard, and we went outside, and and the trick goes from there. Uh, had him name a card, and it was buried in the backyard. Um, but it's, it's, it was buttressing this, this illusion of, I call it planned spontaneity. Yeah. yeah, This illusion of spontaneity because as there's a, there's a corollary to all this, which is, uh, that magicians and, and puzzle makers also, they, they go to such an extent, they plan things out to such a crazy extent that they hope the audience will dismiss it as a possible explanation because nobody would be so crazy as to possibly spend hours burying all these playing cards and sneaking into my house, you know, burying them into the backyard. And, um, and a puzzle, puzzle creators, we, we really take that to, to an extreme. We'll design something and check all 1,000 permutations of it. And, and also you have kind of statistics in the sense that you know like you said, you know that they always ask for one last trick. So statistically, he's probably going to do that. And also, when you suggested the driveway, do, do you also know statistically they're probably going to suggest another location because they want to avoid any preparation that you have? Well, no, it was just a little bit of prompting. I I said, do you have a, a driveway? Do you have a nice outdoor space? You know, I kind of pushed huh. it a little bit in that direction. Um, uh but again, these are all examples of, yeah, it's well rehearsed, and it's another example of how we have planned everything out ahead of time. All the work happens before the trick. So, so, so even that sentence, though, you're using like various cognitive biases. Like when you said you gave him, you you gave him what seemed like one choice, but it was actually two choices. You said, "Do you have a driveway? Do you have some nice looking area?" Yeah. So the driveway is not a nice looking area, and there's recency bias. He's probably thinking the nice looking area, oh, is the backyard. Like, were you aware of that, that you were doing or? Yes, because at the heart of this principle of the illusion of free choice is a cognitive 
uh, bias, which is that if you give people the ability to choose things, they believe the all the proceedings are fair. They believe there's fairness throughout the whole operation, which is which really underscores pick a card, any card, because if I if I if I fan out 52 playing cards and have you choose a card, you're having free choice. But 52 cards is not a huge number for me to be in control of. And, uh, and which is easy for you to say because of thousands of hours of practice. Exactly. Blue cards. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then you can imagine this applying this to the puzzle world. I'll give you a thousand choices of something. I've planned out a thousand possible permutations of this. So, 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 and we'll get to, um, choice and persuasion in the puzzle world because you have this amazing um trick you do with a crossword puzzle on on stage in real time but what other what other would you say are your basic tools on persuasion uh in a magic trick whether it's you know pick a card or what you've been doing on the stage or you know what you've learned throughout and you, you talk about a lot of this in the book like obviously kind of this choice is one um kind of these biases that you know uh that you've that you've either know through learning or know through uh experience these biases that people have where if you offer one thing they're going to take this other thing it's 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 really it's just about anticipating people's decisions and being prepared for all of them like you have this one example in the book yeah. sorry i keep interrupting I, no, it's, yeah. it's annoying it's as your hell, show but, <laughs> no but it's, <laughs> you're you're the one with the knowledge i'm just trying to learn so you you have this one trick you describe where you lay out four cards and you say pick a card and and you describe it you know they're not going to pick the card closest to them because that's the most obvious and then you space the two cards to the left a little bit further than the second card so you know i don't know statistically maybe it's 9 times out of 10 maybe it's 99 times out of 100 they're going to take that second card and so that seems to be like some well thought out and learned persuasion yeah technique. well well beta tested yeah i i, I would say probably 80 percent of the time they'll choose card number two yeah just to clarify they avoid the first one because it's too close to them it's the obvious choice and then cards three and four you place them just far enough on the table away from them that they would have to kind of get up and lean forward to touch those cards so and, and by the way a skill is placing them out so it seems random and not like you planned it that way, but go ahead. Well, they're in a line. They're in a line towards them. So the card closest to them is the first of four, and they avoid that. And three and four, they're in a evenly spaced line, but they're closer to the center of the table, and they have to they have to reach a little bit for that. And uh, it's it's well beta tested, and that is um, that's putting the magic in their hands. We like to say um, they've chosen a card, and this is a one way of revealing that card at the end it's just a, the strongest magic is often in the hands and the in the choice of the spectator of the audience members so, you say you say 80 percent. what what happens on the other 20 percent? Ah, great question you got to have your out you got to know a good magician can can pivot right so again if you're going to do that trick you're not telling them what the end is going to be here's a here's a simple way it's not the it's not the most artful but if they touch the wrong card then you say, all right, well, why don't you touch another one for me as well? And you move those two to the side and you and there are two left. Now touch another one and you move that one or you reveal that one. It's a little bit of magician's choice there. Um, that's a simple way to clean that, clean that up. But there are there are other more sophisticated ways. But you're taking the risk. You're taking 80% ch 
chance, you're taking eighty percent chance risk that they're going to choose the card, and it's worth it to us. I'll give you a more extreme example. Yeah, I will put a playing card face down in the middle of the table, and I'll say to somebody, "Name any card," and I do that trick fifty-two times a week, and it'll hit once a week, and it's an absolute miracle when you walk away from it. But most of the time, it's it's wrong. So I know how to clean that up. I know how to change the story and keep going with it, you know, play it off as a joke, fold it into the narrative of what they perceive is the, is the story of, of the trick that I had, that I had uh, intended to do for them. But when it does hit, it's a miracle and you walk away from it. And it's, it's that kind of risk and repetition that we are comfortable doing. So, so, um, how many kind of tools in your arsenal are like that, where it's like specific trick minded and then also tools in terms of persuasion. Like, so for instance, you mentioned one technique where you're always looking at where the eyes are looking, you know? So how does that help you in a specific trick? We're, co we're covering our angles and we're, we're knowing when the audience is not paying attention and misdirected. And, and that's the moment that we might have to do a move. We wait for that opportune moment. It's not always scripted in. Um, you just, you're, your radar's on for when you can get away with, with doing something. So I'm always looking at the angles. I'll walk into a room. If I see an opportunity to do, to do a trick, slip something into somebody's pocket, I, I just, uh, I'm always aware of where people are looking and when a body is blocking a line of sight. You just, you just learn after decades of doing this to pay attention to that stuff. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I kind of hate the holiday season because first off, I have five kids. Second off, then there's all sorts of other friends, relatives, people who want to buy gifts for, but now I'm not going to worry about it anymore because of this sponsor. Quip is something that's sure to put a smile on everyone's face because it's dental care people actually want to use every day. It's an electric toothbrush with refillable floss and toothpaste, all intentionally designed to make good habits simple. This electric toothbrush has sensitive sonic vibrations and a timer with 30-second pulses to guide your routine. And the Quip floss dispenser has pre-marked strings so you always use the right amount. Plus, Quip delivers brush heads, floss, and toothpaste refills every three months so your new good habits can last all year. That's why Quip is the perfect gift. Join over 3 million happy customers and check everyone off your gift list right now with Quip. And I'm excited to use it because you know what? Dental care is important, particularly as you get older. There's all sorts of problems that can happen if you don't take good care of your teeth. Just go to getquip.com slash James to save on gift sets and to get your first refill free with a refill plan. That's for my customers only, and you get your first refill for free at getquip, that's Q-U-I-P, dot com slash James. Getquip.com slash James. One of the ways that hackers steal sensitive business data or even personal data is through public Wi-Fi, like the infamous dark hotel attacks that targeted executives and hotels all over the world. In fact, a 2018 study by iPass Mobile Security reported that 81% of organizations have seen Wi-Fi-related security issues just in the last 12 months. If your team travels often, works remotely, or has a bring-your-own-device-to-work policy, it's almost impossible for them to avoid using public Wi-Fi for work. 
That's why you need TunnelBear for Teams, an easy-to-use Wi-Fi security app built specifically for teams that are regularly on the go. With one tap, your team can protect their devices with TunnelBear so they can stay productive and safe anywhere they decide to work. And unlike other VPNs, expensing is easy. There's no licenses to juggle or one-off invoices to manage. So do this. Try TunnelBear for Teams free for seven days by signing up at tunnelbear.com slash James. That's a free week of TunnelBear for Teams if you sign up at T-U-N-N-E-L-B-E-A-R.com slash James. TunnelBear.com slash James. Okay, so you're doing magic. You're going to the magic clubs. You're friends with all the magicians. Now you want to skip the line and be noticed and do something different. And also all along, by the way, since you were a kid, you've been into puzzles. Will Shorts, you knew the the New York Times crossword puzzle editor. Like, what's what, what's your story with puzzles? Well, starts with playing Scrabble with my mother. She's a history professor. We have, we've always had that bond, that word nerd bond. And I've been yeah playing competitive Scrabble throughout my teenage years. I started writing crossword puzzles for the New York Times in my early twenties, and I continue to do that today. <clears throat> And I think there there was just an organic moment. I couldn't have planned this, but I'd been doing magic for years and years. It was I was moonlighting. I was working in Hollywood um, at DreamWorks Animation, doing development, producing, and um, I was doing magic shows in the evenings just for fun. I really, honestly, though I loved doing it, I didn't think there was a respectable career in it. I did not want to be a birthday party magician. Your mom's voice was just yeah. like... <laughs> and you're either David Copperfield or Penn and Teller or you're doing bar mitzvahs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the light bulb turned on one day. It was actually for a birthday party. I threw this big party at the Magic Castle. I rented out the basement and I decided I'm going to do a trick for all my friends. And I came up with this crossword puzzle routine, which is the finale of my show, The Enigmatist. And I build a crossword in real time using letters and words that the audience gives me. And then I reveal there's a hidden playing card in the crossword. And it's gotten a lot more complicated. You've seen a much more complicated version, but that was the original version of the trick when I did it uh, over about 10 years ago. And that was the first moment when I realized that I should run with this hybrid of the puzzle magic thing and be the nerdy cerebral magician guy. You know, what felt very unique to me in that particular trick, both how you describe it in Spellbound and how I saw it in in your show, was that trick seems largely not a trick. Meaning, I don't think it's a trick you doing the crossword puzzle, you creating the crossword yeah, puzzle. It's, it's, that felt skill, and that's a hard skill by itself outside of magic. It's pick a card, any card. That's all it is. It's pick a card, any card. I'm going to figure out what it is using some undisclosed methods. Um, there are thousands of pick a card, any card tricks. And my reveal is that I hide it in a crossword puzzle. But the crossword puzzle itself, which is just watching you create the crossword puzzle, that in itself is amazing. There was no magic there. You're taking clues from the audience and words from the audience, and you're constructing, it it seemed to me, you're constructing in real time a real 
crossword puzzle. It's the first time you've seen that crossword puzzle. There's, it's just you making a crossword puzzle, which is a hard skill. And so that was what was amazing is that that part, those four minutes where you're making that crossword puzzle is not a trick. It's you making a crossword puzzle. It comes after decades of, of making puzzles and knowing my patterns. And I know if there's a, a T here and an R here and a V here, like what this area needs to be to fill that out. So it's talk about having lots of outs, lots of a tree of options. And I, and I really know what, what all those can be. And, and, and my favorite part of making the crossword is there are a few moments in there when I really untether myself. And I say to the audience, like, give me the word that goes here. And I'm having this back and forth with the audience. Now, give me a letter that goes here. Well, if you give me this one, this is going to have to be, you know, Yoko Ono. And if you give me this one over here, it's going to have to be Brian Eno. And you just, you, and you talk about having a skill set, like that, you know, a well-practiced thing that you can fall back on. I know that whatever letters they give me, I probably have some obscure European river that's going to help me get out of that corner. Which is very, so this is very unique because let's say in most magic acts, most of the time we're watching a magic act. But here in the middle of a pick a card, any card magic act, we're actually watching another skill on top of it, completely unrelated to magic, which is crossword puzzle construction, which is, again, like you say, not an easy skill. It took thousands of hours. And I think that's unusual inside a magic act. It reminds me of like, Babe Ruth coming up to bat and pointing, I'm going to hit the home run over there to left field. And then he does it. There's no magic. He actually had the skill to do it, but feels like magic. That's a, that's a kind comparison. You're like Babe Ruth. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he struck out a bunch of times trying to do that. You, you only remember the successes, um, which is a, a, a big bias that we, a bias that we rely on. But anyway, um, I would say that the Venn diagram of magic and puzzles exists. It's not like I'm combining magic with, um, you know, playing tennis or something. I think that would be a little forced, but the, you know, vaudeville shows were rich with people doing mental gymnastics and. Right. So mentalism and magic has had a, a long relationship together, like, like memory tricks. Memory, yes. Mentalism is a different thing. Mentalism is, is mind reading, but memory tricks, absolutely. Uh, mathematic tricks, um, chess and other games. You, 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 there, there have been a lot of shows over the last century that have what I call mental gymnastics, which is, is, is watching this professor calculate things quickly. But you, had, but you had this sense that this intersection of you you got the sense after after doing something after actually doing it feeling good about it seeing the audience reaction oh this combination this is something now i can see myself at age 65 like i there's a path now yeah yeah i think so um just imagine all these card tricks that you've learned there there are thousands of them that rely on math and stacking the cards in a certain way and th those are puzzles and um you know the overlap is there, and and I'm I'm very excited that I, I, I came across it, and I think when you when you cross pollinate something, when you take your two worlds and put them together, two things that you're an expert in, you create something brand new. And I saw a little bit of a market opportunity for it. There wasn't no one was performing puzzles. I've never really seen that. Um, I take a page from the book of. 
uh, parlor games that are played at puzzle conventions. Of course, those exist. Uh, puzzlers get together, and um, in the evenings, they'll they'll sit down and divide people into tables or divide the room in half, and somebody's come up with a little game for everybody to play, and they say, stand up when you know the answer. So that's largely, you know, that's that's what my show is, right? There's this there's this box on stage with a combination and I tell the room, you are all going to unlock this box. I'm going to show you a bunch of puzzles. Stand up if you know the answer. So I never really seen that performed in a theatrical way. The other person that inspired me was Will Shorts, the crossword editor of the Times and a wonderful friend and mentor. And he, when he on occasion lectures at universities and and at his own puzzle conclaves, you know, he'll do the same thing. He'll divide the room in half and play word games with them. A, very, a variant of what he does on NPR, which he's been doing for decades as the puzzle master. So I just, I saw an opportunity to, to quiz the audience and make them feel smart, right? Right, and then, and then career-wise, you stand out from the thousand other magicians maybe in the California area that are all doing the pick a card, any card. I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad about them. I'm just saying now you get to stand out. Now you skip the line. It reminds me of, you know, we had Chris Turner on recently combining rap and comedy skips the line is able to now perform at any comedy club because he's got this extra, he's got this intersection that nobody else is doing. So that catapulted him ahead of, you know, thousands of other comedians trying to perform at venues he's performing at. Yeah. It's about, making yourself different. Uh, I had been doing the magic and puzzle hybrid for a number of years, but only recently when I mounted this show did I decide to call it the Enigmatist, and it became 75% puzzles and 25% magic um, from a branding point of view. And it's it served me well. It really does distinguish me in the marketplace. And I think you... I, I really love that metaphor of skipping the line. And I, I think I also did it because of other, other relevant experience I had in my life. Everything you do is relevant. All the choices you make, all the jobs you take on, all the, I, I went off to Hong Kong for two years and didn't work in my twenties and just kind of messed around in Hong Kong for two years. But th you know, that was relevant experience too. And I learned things over there that I am putting into a show right now that I'm writing and so everything is relevant, and that helps you skip the line because you take experience that other people don't have, and you put it in, in and you imbue it into the track you're on. Well, well, and also I like how like so you write about the Hong Kong experience in the in the book or the the going to Asia experience, but then specifically at the end of these two years, you go to Chengdu and learn this one trick, and then that becomes you you frame this trip in terms of that narrative, that story, like you're a seeker. It's this mystical the seeker in Asia of the, the highly protected uh, ancient trick. And now suddenly that is a story that becomes valuable to your, the narrative of who you are as people are describing you, like you should hire this guy for this or, or use him because it becomes this like superhero origin story. So it's again, it's like you, you talk a lot about how you frame things and situations. And I think people ignore that in their stories. They just say, oh, I, I just partied in Shanghai for a couple of years when actually there's this, you, you, you fit it nicely into this arc of the hero story that propelled you. Controlling the narrative is the most important thing you can do as you progress through life and 
make a path in your career. It's it's taking those principles of illusion, frankly, because that's what a magician does is we're on stage and we are controlling the experience. We are controlling the story that everybody takes home with them. And I think I've done a good job of that. I that That's a great example. When I went to Hong Kong, I was just um, kind of messing around for two years, exploring my heritage. My father's from Hong Kong. But then I realized on the eve of coming back to the U.S. that I should make this time worth something. So I decided, I took a few months and sought out this ancient Chinese trick, the face-changing trick, which is a national secret. And I can't really tell you how I obtained the secret, but I did. Um, I learned how to perform that trick. I'm terrible at it. It takes a lifetime to learn. It was so naive of me, but it nevertheless made for a great story that I could use to frame that that time away. And these storytelling, this this aspect of storytelling is extremely important because obviously in a single year, many things happen to you. But if somebody asked you, what was last year like? You're going to find the most interesting story to tell about last year. And this was the year for me. So, so some people do that well. Some people don't do that well. And I think it makes a big difference. And you, and you look at the... It could, it's a difference of billions of dollars in some cases. Like you look at the narrative Steve Jobs tells about yeah. himself and Apple and, and the design of, 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 you know, the Apple computer and then the Mac and so on. And, and then the iPod, that's a narrative. That's only one tiny thread in lots of threads of his story, but he controlled that narrative. So we think of him as this design genius which he is. I can't argue it. That that's how he everybody misses. The everybody has hits and misses, and 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 it is within your power to 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 weave the hits into a story that everybody remembers. So what's another example where you've seen that outside of magic where it worked really well? Where someone and I'm not saying people should not tell the truth. You didn't. It's not like you lied about going to Chengdu, but it's it's just that you control the narrative. People think about you. You make it an interesting story. What's another instance where either you've used that or you've seen that outside the magic world? Well, I, I can just speak from personal experience. There have been projects that have failed for me and things that I've been kicked off of and jobs that I've been fired from. And you don't have to disclose those to people. You were working on something else at the time, or you were too cool for this. And, you know, like that that's a piece of advice a friend gave me once. Is just be too cool for the, the don't 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 go apologizing to people. Don't dwell on these disappointments or these failures. You were too cool for it. It didn't even really matter, you know? And if you're too cool for it, people will respond to that energy. It reminds me one time I was just like in college, I was shooting pool with somebody and I made this shot, and I said, oh, I just got lucky, which I really did. And he said, don't ever tell anyone you just got lucky. Like, make them think. Yeah, that's, called to, that's taking credit for coincidences. That's something that magicians do all the time. Hmm. I'll give you some examples. You can choose a playing card. Um, let's say you've chosen the eight of clubs. I've figured out somehow using a method that I know you've chosen the eight of clubs. I give you the cards to shuffle. This happens all the time. You shuffle it, you hand it back to me, and I I always peek at that bottom card that you just by chance have shuffled that eight of clubs to the bottom. Hmm. And you hand it to me, and I say, wait, actually, I don't want to touch the cards. I don't want to touch them. Just put them in the middle of the table. I don't even want to touch them. 
And then you go into the mumbo jumbo and wave your hand over the deck, and and then you say, "Look on the bottom of the deck," and you ha- you just take you just roll with those moments. I will tell you. Here's another story. This is the best trick I've ever performed in my entire life. This is in the book as well. I was in Philadelphia, and I was performing for a bunch of investment bankers, and we were at the bar the night before, just hanging out. And I walked up to a man, and I complimented his nice blazer that he was wearing, and I kind of grabbed his collar, and, which was the excuse for me slipping a playing card in his pocket. It was the two of clubs. And I pivoted to the rest of the room. I turned to them to do a trick that was going to reveal the two of clubs was in this man's pocket at the end of it. And before I could start anything, this, this guy walks up. He's got this kind of grimace on his face. He's an owlish guy, and he, and he says, all right, magic boy, you think you're so good? Make the two of clubs appear. And you wait decades for this to happen. I mean, it, it, you wait decades for it to happen. And you, you, you're, you, you can't panic because in your head, you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But you can't rush it. You got to play it cool. And you, uh, because if I were to immediately snap my fingers and say, all right, check your pocket, that is called too impossible. Mm. That is a pitfall of magic. It's too impossible. And what happens when something's too impossible is the audience will conclude a simple explanation. Like he, like he, you made him say that in advance. Yeah, exactly. That he was in, the guy requesting it was in on it. The guy, the mark with the card in his pocket was in on it. Um, Maybe that I got lucky, right? Which I did, but they might conclude that. So instead you have to start telling a story. And, And I said, oh, okay, two of clubs. Hold on a sec. And I fanned through the deck of cards and I pulled out another card, which I pretended was the two of clubs. And I kind of waved it around and I said, all right, watch this. And I vanished that card from my hands. And then I took my empty hand and I went about six inches away from that guy's pocket. And I didn't touch it, but I went just close enough that I gestured that it was magically teleporting through the air and ending up in his pocket just close enough to to allow people to imagine a solution. That's what we do. We give you this gap and and you as an audience member populate into that gap your own explanation of what's happened. Maybe I tossed it in there. Maybe I had a card stuck to my hand in some way. Maybe I have some special device that allows me to print any card and you know Adults come up with these crazy explanations, whereas kids, we can talk about this in a second, kids always just go over the simplest answer and they always bust me. But, you know, adults start trying to figure, maybe there's a type, a special type of ink where you can rub the card and it'll change from one card to another. They come up with all these things. You got to give them that gap. And that's why I just went six inches away from the guy's coat pocket and I didn't rush it. And that's the best trick I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what's interesting is, is... And you talk about this in the book and in the and the evolution of this. There's a difference between facts and story to present facts. So, for instance, if uh, you know there's danger in the forest, you could tell your kids there's danger in the forest, but they might not remember that as well as if you tell them this elaborate story that the, the their ancestors died and turned into demons and they all live in the forest and they'll eat you and. That's what people will remember. So what you did was you could have just, in that situation, just gone with the facts. Oh, the two of clubs? Sure, it was right there. And that wouldn't have been as good as you constructed this story. 
it's not as much, it seems, about what you called the gap. It seems to me about the gap is the 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 time needed to tell a story, a, a believable story, or, or or a story, an interesting story. You're telling a, an interesting story, and I think you are leaving a little bit for them to fill in, which mm. which clearly, is a good, good storytelling. Clearly, is more effective. Yeah, I mean the best. God, the movies that scare me the most are the paranormal activity kind of um, psychological horror movies. Not not so much gore on screen, but when the lights are out, like what is happening? What is coming up those stairs? Like those terrify me. Or to take the a complete opposite side of the genre, take a, a Hemingway short story. He would always say he'd write lines down and he'd erase all the lines where if you read the story without those lines, you still probably know what those lines would have said. Like he erases information, but keeps the same story. And that's, that's interesting oh, that's cool. too. Cause that's how he gets this m weird minimalist sure. effect yeah. is that he wrote it down, but then erased it. Yeah. So, um, but, but the, the, the story stuff also seems very much related to persuasion. Like even in your show, it's, it's built around this elaborate, you know, imaginary location, which, we're trying to uncover its secrets, basically. And, and as people buy into that, the, you're controlling the, the world that they see and, and experience, and that allows you, I think, to uh, weave the magic through a little more easily without them being, you, you're removing their skepticism because we're all going on this ride with you on the story. Yeah, I, I like to compare magic to filmmaking, and the relationship is there already because... Uh, Filmmaking really grew out of the world of magic. Uh, George Méliès was a magician. The, the original filmmakers that took up the the original camera were magicians. And well, it's, and it's an illusion. The film is an illusion. Yeah, it's 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 what we call controlling the frame, right? You're you're looking right here. We're making you look right here, and we can move that frame around. But I I often say that a a good magician and a good director can control where you're looking, but a great magician, a great director is controlling what you're feeling, what you're experiencing. And that is what I'm trying to do in my show. Uh, is is a, It's a full immersive evening and I'm hopefully you're getting lost in this world of from 100 years ago, this crazy estate riverbank outside of Chicago, this fantastical Willy Wonka-esque place. And... Um, and I control what you're experiencing throughout the whole arc of the show, and there's surprises along the way. And and you compare that in the in the book to if someone just goes up there and starts doing a string of card tricks, that's not as interesting as kind of having this arc around it. And you see the same thing, like we're we're doing this in a comedy club. You see this thing in a comedy set. Like if someone just tells a bunch of one-liners that have nothing to do with each other and have no point of view. That could be good, by the way. There's some comedians who have done that very successfully, but in general, that's that's not going to feel as good to the audience, and it's not going to even the best at people doing that, like a comedian like Stephen Wright. It's hard to sustain an audience for an hour. Whereas if there's an arc of a story and all the comedy is fitting into that, it's a little easier to sustain the the attention of the audience. And and frankly, most magicians don't do it, as I imagine. Most comedians don't do it. I'm not an expert in that world, but um, I think there are only a handful of people that are are elevating magic through storytelling. 
and it's it makes for a more effective magic show. You know, there's a, there's another technique that I think is really powerful that you talk about, and this is really powerful in the context of business, negotiation, sales, almost everything. But um, the one look ahead or one step ahead oh, yeah. method, where in magic you refer to it like you referred to it in 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 a, a trick you were just describing, where you might you always try to see what the bottom card is. If you have one more piece of information than the other person has, that actually is an enormous advantage. Like information is power. So even knowing one more thing than the audience is an enormous advantage. Uh, maybe describe that a little bit more in magic and if you want, how you see it in business. Well, the one ahead principle is uh, simply this. If I if I have a, I'm, I'm going to butcher this. I haven't done this in so long. Um, is this an offbeat? Are you doing a magic trick right now? <laughs> it's an offbeat in that you got to cut this out, as I remember. We don't this, cut anything out. No, that's fine. How this <laughs> trick works. I think it's, because um, this is just the bones of a trick. If I put a card down on a table, and I know what that is, right? You don't. And then I say, um, I, and I go through and I get an, and I have you, I have you name any card. Right, and you say so. So the first card on the table, let's let's say, is the the, the Ace of Hearts, and then I say to you, um, name any card, and you say the Four of Clubs. Right, I'm going to go through, and I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to grab the Ace of Hearts and put it down here, and then I say, name name another card, and you say the Seven of Diamonds, and I pretend to get that, but I'm getting the the last card that you named. I think I'm completely butchering this, but... Um, no, it's okay, because you do describe it completely. I do describe it in the book. It, you describe it well enough that I felt like I could do the trick on my kids. Now, I haven't tried it yet, but I, you do, that's the Here, one let trick. Me, let me did. describe a, a version of this that I can do. Uh, if I have, a, if I have a, uh, a coin underneath a cup, right, that you don't know about, I'm one ahead with that coin. Right. So then if I take a second coin and I make it disappear... You think it's the same one? I say, look under the cup. There it is. We call it, so that's called being one ahead, right? Um, I've a lot of us have done this in our life, um, in our lives. There are famous business examples of this. I, I I love how Richard Branson describes how he founded, started Virgin Airways. So he was flying to the Caribbean, and this was before he was extremely wealthy. And the the flight that was going to take him to the Virgin Islands, uh, for whatever reason, was canceled. So he chartered a plane with money that he didn't have, and then he wrote on a sign, Virgin Airways, you know, X amount of dollars, and walked around the airport and got all those other passengers to buy into that flight that he just chartered. So, right. So, so, so there's a there's another name too for that technique, which is called ready, fire, aim. So he basically fired before he aimed. So he got the he got the guy with the plane. He basically chartered the plane without having any money. He said to the pilot, "I'm chartering this plane." Pilot said that this is the cost. He said, "Okay." There's yep. no money in his pocket. He had just fired, got the deal. Yeah. Now he has to get the money, and that's when he basically essentially acts as if he's an airline, says tickets are $29. You're all just missed your flight. Take this. Yeah. He's sold out. But you know out. what that is? That is believing in your abilities 
to catch up to to uh, what your goal is. Uh, I did it. Here's a simple, the simplest version of me doing it. Um, arguably, the video that launched my career was when I came up with that crossword puzzle trick. The New York Times heard about it, and they reached out to me, and they said, we want to write an article about this crossword puzzle trick that we, we heard about. And I was, was ambitious, and I said, well, do you want to shoot a video of it? I'm actually performing this trick at a party in two weeks at my friend's house. Do you want to come shoot it for an online piece? And they said, okay, let's do it. And then I started calling up everybody, and I said, who's got a fancy living room for me to do this trick in? The New York Times wants to come film it. So I was able to catch up to you know what I had set up, and of course, who doesn't want the New York Times in their living room? So. Right, and so and you talk about s similar experiences where, and this has worked for me with podcasts. Like, let's say there's a guest who lives in L.A. that uh, I've always wanted to interview, and he says, um, "Sure, just let me know next time you're in L.A." And you've mentioned this type of technique in the book. I'll say, "Oh, it just so happens I'm going to be in L.A. next week." Now I had no plans but I'll go to LA and then I get the interview because he yeah. just agreed. You take that so, red eye flight, you know, you, you say. And so, and that works a lot. And it, it does work sometimes in magical ways, like depending on how uh, extreme. So actually I have, I have an example. Merrick, are you still here? Yeah, I am. So, so Merrick used to be a professor of mine, but then I was a teacher of his. Like I, this has nothing to do with any, but I gave you chess lessons for a long time or for several years. And I don't know if you remember, Merrick, this is like, we're talking almost 30 years ago. Uh, sometimes I would say, okay, let's practice a chess puzzle. And I would just throw the pieces on the board and set up a perfect position and puzzle that I would say you have to solve. And I think you always thought, I explained it to you later, but I think you always thought like I just had these puzzles in my head and these positions in my head were all ready to go. And it would take me two seconds to set it up on the board. But bef the hour before the lesson, I would remember, memorize and practice. Well, I hate all the that you're taking that away now, because because <laughs> for 30 years I would see you like smash the pieces, so you throw them on the board, like your fingers would fly faster, and it'd be like the perfect thing that would explain what you had just done. Like you'd want to show me some pin if I do some move. But there was something else you did that reminds me of what I'm hearing about the spellbound thing. You would in in the game that we were playing, you had so much control that you would sometimes set up a situation to see if I would see it. That was like a, a little puzzle, like some pin, some opportunity. And the game was so under your control that I end up and be in that position. Then you would say to me, hey, you know, you might not have noticed, but I set it up so you could pin me. It was pretty cool. Yeah, so a lot of, like, all that is pre-planned, but it's like a ready-fire aim or a look-ahead now, now I actually hate you, just <laughs> for a moment. <laughs> Very so, impressive. But yeah, and, and in business, I think this occurs all the time. Like you meant, and, and I've done this as well, where I'm going in, to an interview, but I'll use LinkedIn or whatever to research everybody in the conference room. And then I'm able to refer to like obscure things about the, the CFO's college. Or one time I was um, trying to work for a hedge fund manager. This was about 20 years ago. And I read his PhD thesis from the sixties and had some thoughts on it, which I was able to kind of bring up in in kind of a casual dinner with him or bring up Well, you're own. describing a full magic show here. You're using all sorts of principles. But, but no, no, absolutely. Business is magic. But that's <laughs> what it is. You are you you prepared, you overprepared, you illusion of free choice. 
you worked it into that conversation without forcing it on him. You 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 probably dripped some things in the conversation to allow it to to go that way, and perhaps even allow that person to believe that he was directing the conversation. Um, you know, there's we're using all these things, and and now here's an interesting um, take on it, though. You can maybe not maybe not for a job interview, but imagine the following situation where you're at work and your boss says, "Complete this assignment overnight," and you are so prepared because you wrote some crazy program that can do it like that. You wrote some program and you accomplish it in one hour, and you turn it in to your boss in only an hour, and your boss thinks you're you're superhuman. So you have two choices. You can be the magician and pretend to be this super genius superhero, which is one way to go, or you can reveal that you created the program. You can reveal the method behind it and get respect from your boss for being the super genius that came up with the effective method. So that's something to think about. That you know, I'll t- the latter is the is the is the postmodern. Uh, pull back the curtain a little bit and and take credit for the method. Yeah, and I wish you know there's 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 kind of a, a lesson buried in here that maybe we could figure out, which is that being transparent makes you in this case makes you more money. And I'll tell you why. This exact situation happened to me. I built in the '90s. I had a co- a company building websites, and so I made the first website for AmericanExpress.com, and they were paying us a lot of money. I never really made money before in my life. I was scared to death. And the, the website was like 60,000 pages. And so I did write software to make all 60,000 pages really quickly. Yeah. But I didn't want to tell them because they were paying us so much money. I thought, you know, they won't pay us that exactly. much money. Yeah, yeah. And so, so we built the website, we delivered it and so on. But I had this software that could make large websites really quickly uh, you know, in a day. Now we sold our company for a multiple of profits. We were in a tiny ad agency basically. So you sell for like some small multiple of earnings. Meanwhile, a few years later, a company called WordPress makes similar software to make large websites. And they're worth a billion because they're a product company and not a services company. Uh I wish I had been transparent that I had this product and started making people buy the product. I would have been worth much more. So when you when you build things that are amazing, that's worth more than when you just do a service and you're charging by the hour. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. So 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 sometimes this um, you know exposing the method um, is it becomes come you come up with more ways to make money at least in a business sense. Well, I think it also um, it gives reassurance to your client. They if you if you can expose and reveal that you are prepared for every possible outcome, everything that could possibly go wrong. And they can see the inner workings and how much time you've put into contingency plans. You know, that there's reassurance there. There's trust and people, they want to work with that person. Yeah, well, look at your situation with the Hollywood director and doing that trick in the back of his house and then showing him a video of how you did the trick, you know, assuming that he was going to ask for you to do that trick. I'm sure he hired you or worked with you to yeah. work with him after that, like uh, kind of unveiling that that transparency. So what would you say, like, I mean, I've got a million things bo- bookmarked in here. What would you say is like, 
you know, you talk about choice overload. What's an example of that in 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 magic? Like, so they people talk about the paradox of choice yeah. in a supermarket. Like, people can't choose because now there's too many, or they get anxiety because there's too many choices. What happens in a magic trick? For choice paralysis, um, I don't think it really comes up. I think that we're we're in such we're controlling the environment so much that we don't we don't really allow people to have choice paralysis. We we move the show along, and and then you're controlling things so much. What I always wanted to understand is what's a force. I see that word a lot in books by magicians when you you force a choice. And it's always just kind of glossed over because you never nobody ever says how they force a choice. Yeah, it's a it's a technical secret. So for the most part, I avoid those, especially in in the book and in in, in my show. I don't reveal technical secrets, but I will say because we've already covered it, and it's out there. Um, at the beginning of now, you see me when the audience has only one card to choose. That is a force, right? They believe that they are being able to choose from a variety of cards, but they only get one. Or, you know, you can you only get three, or you know, it doesn't have to just be one. But that's that's an example of what a force is. What might be another example? Is there any other example you can say? Um uh, probably not. <laughs> um I will just say that to to go back to one of the other principles that a variant of the force is you do have free choice, but I'm prepared for all those outcomes. So I'm stripping away in uh, stripping away free choice on the back end of things. Yeah, the plan B stuff, and you describe a bunch of different ways to have a plan B in magic. I think that's extremely important. I think that's in extremely show, important in negotiation too. In The Enigmatist, I will tell you that I have two or three backups for every single trick. Yeah, and you describe. I'm proud some... of. I'm quite proud of that, and it seems like it's not worth it, but I've needed to use all of them. And something happened. I can't tell you what it is, but something happened uh, two weekends ago after 90 shows. It might have been the show I was at. I think I went two weekends ago. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about it afterward. Not, this had never happened before, and I was ready for it. And I'm, I'm and um, and I just I kept I controlled the narrative. I kept the story going. You can't lose control of your audience. If they see the cracks, if, uh, then the whole temple will will crumble down. So you have to keep things moving and, and let them know that they are in good hands. Well, that's an, an interesting thing. Uh, uh, you you know, the audience is like an x-ray machine. They see if you're nervous. They see, like you say, if there's any cracks. Let's say you do somehow lose control of the audience a little bit or the flow. Uh, not necessarily that the magic or that the tricks don't work, but just something happens you're distracted for a second. The audience starts mumbling. I don't know. You feel like you lose control. You get a little nervous that they're not being as entertained. Yeah. What do you do to kind of invite them back to your party? I rely on my character and my stage persona, which I think is pretty much me just up on stage. Um, and I think that I, I try to get in the audience's good graces and here's let me let me phrase this as a question. Some someone asked me once after a show, it was a, it was a talk that I gave in LA, and he said, "Do you think the audience needs to root for the magician? Because we're rooting for you during your show." And I said, "No, not always, because when you watch um, Chris Angel walking over the alligator pit." 
you're secretly kind of hoping he's going to fall in the alligator kit, you know, or, mm. or at least cut it close and then save himself, you know. Um, so I, it's it's the character that you're presenting. And I think when some of the magicians pretending to be superhuman screw up, if something goes wrong, that temple crumbles really fast. But for me, where I've at the top of the show told you the magic isn't real, I've told you it's all a puzzle, the the story I'm telling is largely one of of me being this absent-minded professor who's who's calculating things and trying to put things together and let's see if I can pull it all off in front of, of you guys. I can put this whole thing together. You end up rooting for that. And I th- when things go wrong, I can I can lean on the on that motif that none of it's real and that we're all in this together and uh, and just keep the show moving. And someone said something to me. This is one of the nicest things that someone said to me after a show one night. And they said, David, your show, you are doing magic with the audience, not to the audience. And I really love that. Yeah, and uh, thinking about the show I went to, it's true. You you actively involved almost all the audience members, at least the ones in the first two rows. And... You have people standing up, doing things. And I think when people feel like they're in, being engaged, they they enjoy it more. They feel it's like part the of the It's not the only ride. way. It's, it's not the only way. There are, there are a lot of effective shows where the magic is be, being done to people. And you are manipulating them. And you are, and that's entertaining in its own way as well. But I've, I've just taken this other path, and it, and it works for me. I think, yeah, I think engaging people on that level, teaching them something, pulling back the curtain, like it all... It all dovetails into, uh, you know, enhanced engagement and, and enjoyment. Well, uh, David, so many, it's kind of interesting, actually. I read the book and separately I did a video recommending yeah, the book, Spellbound. So, and then I reached out to Steve and said, oh, we should, this was a great book. Let's have this guy on the podcast. Oh, your editor was Hollis Heimbach, right? Yes. Yeah, so she's my editor for my oh. for, for Skip the Line. She'll or, be thrilled. Yeah. And uh, 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 and then, just by coincidence, Chris Turner writes me. And it's like, oh, you should definitely see this show from my friend uh, David Kwong. And so, okay, definitely got to get, I'm going to see the show, get you on the podcast. I'm so glad I did. I then reread the book, learned a lot more, got all my questions answered. Well, Still- I mean, I'm excited to read your book because it, it, this theme really resonates with me. And I've, my whole career has been doing magic in an unconventional way and, and trying to skip the line. And I, I think to an extent I, I have done that and it hasn't been easy. But uh, What was the hard part? I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of hard parts, but like what stands out? I think the hardest part for me is my peers who have done magic conventionally they think that I've like cheated, that I've well, this is an interesting thing that I haven't thing. put in the the real work, that I haven't done the open mic nights and kind of um, you know uh, proven my worth by go you know doing college campuses for uh, five hundred dollars a pop and like and kind of building it way you know a, a vertical ascension that way instead of gone around. But I've done my five hundred dollars shows. Like I've done, I've done my two hundred dollars shows. I've done my shows. I've done so many for free just to get my name out there. It's, it hasn't been easy. But, um, but to, to some ways, I have gone around, and it's it's 
trying to engage people in a new way. Well, but but this is the interesting thing, though, what you just said about this skip the line, um, you know, buying into the fact that, okay, this is, I'm going to figure out a way to skip the line and and do it. You want to do it because it's for career, it's good. But but when you're passionately interested in something, let's say magic, there's a whole subculture. Any subculture has a hierarchy from alpha to omega, and there's rules to that hierarchy. And when you break the rules, everybody who was above you in the hierarchy starts to hate you. Yeah. And so that's always going to happen yeah. to 100% of the people who skip the line. That yeah. never not happens. And, and that's why, I, I don't know, you could think of every single example in history, but that's why you're getting the response you're getting. And I think it's, I think it's very personally difficult because you have to remove yourself or, or, or disengage yourself from some of the rules of this hierarchy that you've joined for years maybe or decades and that's very personally, like psychologically difficult. We're, we're, we're hierarchical beings. We're primates. That's what we do. And I think it's, it's going to release cortisol and all sorts of bad chemicals. <laughs> and because you're supposed to stay in the hierarchy to get protected from the lions and skipping the line breaks that, that rule. And I, I, I think that that's the hard thing with success really. Well, do you, so do you think that any hole in the market, like this mar market opportunity that you see, no one else is, that is inherently skipping the line. That is doing things in a different way. You're changing the product slightly in order to make a difference in the marketplace. Yes. Everyone will, everyone will trash you all the time. <laughs> so but that's it, what it, I, yeah, but I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I think that's what skipping the line is, is seeing an opportunity and doing the conventional thing differently. Yeah. To create a new product. And, and in my case, it was puzzles and it was using Hollywood and movies and, you know, these other jobs that I had. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I don't know. There's all these different techniques for skipping the line. And one of them is this kind of intersection of two ideas that, that makes you more powerful in both. And again, both sides will say, oh, well, he's not the top of puzzle maker. He's not the top. You know, Scott Adams talks about this with, you know, he's the creator of Dilbert. Oh, Dilbert, yeah. He says, I'm not the funniest guy. I'm not the best businessman. I'm not the best artist. But the combination of these things, I have the most syndicated cartoon in the world. And he takes a lot of heat for that from people who have been doing it for ma yeah. many years longer. I have one foot in magic and one foot in puzzles, and I am by far not the best in either. And so then you, then you wonder, like, you always think, oh, I really admire how these two famous magicians after 30 years are such, they, they, they have such, uh, I've always admired them for decades. Everyone else admires them. And now I'm removing from myself from that ladder. You're not going to get the same kind of admiration after 30 years. Yeah. They'll have a different kind. Maybe no one's done it, but it feels sad a little bit. It's, it's it does feel sad hard. a little bit, but the adulation I'm getting from the people that come to my show and are seeing this new, hybrid this new product i've created that outweighs the the sadness so yeah, it's totally I, worth it because i think what happens there is you experiment right so when you were you were struggling with okay i'm a magician but how do i stand out so you experiment with different things and then you did this party where you did this live crossword puzzle then you felt something inside like oh i get it like that was fun in a way that i haven't experienced before because i combine these two things so for everybody there might be a different way that they feel that moment. And, uh, you know, that's, 
that suddenly told you the direction to go as opposed to the rules that you were told. So that's the, uh, that's where you, you, you don't, mo you don't, mo you don't skip the line until you do enough experiments where you begin to feel that adulation. So I'm sure you, you've, you know, when you talk about sleight of hand, you, you, I'm sure you've thought about the 10,000 hour rule or have, have I done 10,000 hours of mastering sleight of hands? There's some, there's part of this skipping the line concept. They call the 10,000 experiment rule where you have to experiment with lots of different things until you feel that either adulation or passion kind of flare up. And that's where, you know, this is the right yeah. direction is doing these experiments. But, and that's what you did with, yes. cause I'm sure you experimented with other things. You experienced with Hollywood, you experimented with corporate world. And, but this one thing you figured, oh, it could all come together. Hollywood, corporate, magic, puzzles, boom. Well, it was more so in my career in the, in the, I was very conservative in the career path that I chose. So I, I stayed close. I, I had, I kept the normal, normal job, the desk job, right? I did not want to go off and be a magician and just do birthday parties. I did a lot of my peers who were quite successful. This is all I've ever wanted to do. They ran away with the circus, so to speak, but I kept a conventional career and kind of dabbled on the outside uh, until, and then something hit. And it, I and I knew I remember the moment when it hit, and I was like thinking, I think I can make more money now doing it, doing magic, and I, than I can at my studio job in Hollywood. And I and I and I real and I saw the potential. Well, well, you know, having the conventional desk job is a way of removing the risk. It's the it's yeah, the it's plan totally B. Them, yes. Some people don't yep. give themselves a plan B on career, so that forces them to put in the ten thousand hours and take this path but it's also scary because they can't experiment as much. Did you ever lose a job and then use magic to take revenge on the boss? <laughs> I don't think so. Do you know anyone who has? That'd be kind of a cool story. <laughs> there have been a lot of diabolical uses of uh, these principles. In my book, I really try to keep it all benevolent. And I think that it's not about deceiving people and manipulating people. You can use these principles to get one, two, 50 steps ahead of the competition. You can have more control and command over your own life. That's that's what these secrets should be used for. Although we skipped completely because I'm not a conspiracy theorist. We can skip completely Sidney Gottlieb, a very weird oh, guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. and MKUltra, MK Ultra. <laughs> yeah, sure. CIA giving LSD to unsuspecting people and magic used to teach the CIA agents how to yeah. manipulate this. but. People could read the book. It's a great story. Great book, Spellbound, David Kwong, great shows, great TED Talk. Everything you do, people should watch. And where, where's the best place, other than Spellbound, what's the best place people should find out what you're up to well, and see what you're doing? If you're in New York, The Enigmatist is my one-man show, which is an immersive evening of puzzles, cryptography, and illusions. It's at the Highline Hotel in Chelsea. It's immersive. You walk into this gothic hotel you have to solve a puzzle room it's like a mini escape room to be admitted into the theater and it is filled with surprises and twists and turns and and that's here in new york on friday and saturday night until january 12th and then it goes off to los angeles i'll be at the geffen playhouse in may and that'll probably be uh knock on wood that'll mm -hmm. be a, a few months there i think and um do you have a website that people can check out I'm YouTube uh, channel. Yeah, uh, David Kwong Magic is my website. Uh, Instagram and Twitter is just my name, David Kwong, mm -hmm. and um, not hard to find. So, 
if you like, if you're intrigued by all this, the trailer for The Enigmatist is has a hidden secret code in it, which I tell you at the end. And I say, if you can find this secret code, it unlocks a website that has more puzzles for you to solve. And they are fun and they're not too hard. And if you need a nudge on how to solve that secret code, I'm easy to find online. So um, more people solving, the better. Excellent. Well, thanks, David. I personally, by the way, loved the show. So did my daughter who went the week after. And uh, the book's great. Learned a lot and learned a lot from this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. So much fun. That was so much fun. Wait, 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 wait. Just one second. Don't go yet. I want to remind you right now, I really want you to get a copy of my book, Reinvent Yourself. I wrote this book because I needed it. For 30 years, I've had to reinvent so many times. I've also had times when my interests simply changed. And I wanted to know, how do you start reinventing a career without taking too much risk, without risking going broke? So I wrote my stories, I wrote my techniques, all in this one book, Reinvent Yourself. And I want you to have a copy of my book. All you have to do is go to www.reinventbook.net. That's www.reinventbook.net. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.